you don't know how good you got it until it's gone. Electricity is one of those things we can take for granted living in the modern world. Everyone here today is at some point know what it's like to turn on a light switch with little to no effort. In the blink of an eye, you can control the lighting of a closet, a room, or a whole house. You can turn on some lights with the push of a button, or even the clapping of your hands. Mike, we haven't gotten those installed yet. We need to work on that. Some light fixtures, you can even control with a dimmer. You get to control how bright or how dark you actually want it. But periodically, this amazing technological phenomenon in modern luxury isn't always at our beck and call. Sometimes electricity escapes from us, leaving us feeling out of control. Suddenly, we realize that we don't have complete control over our environment or our plans. And we're left feeling fearful or anxious, stuck, and in the dark. On November 9th, 1965, one of the worst blackouts in U.S. history occurred when all of New York State and portions of seven neighboring states and eastern Canada were plunged into darkness. What was later dubbed the Great Northeast Blackout began at the height of rush hour. Millions of commuters returning home from work were delayed, and 800,000 people in New York's subway system totally trapped. Thousands more were left stranded in office buildings, elevators, and trains. The blackout was caused when, two, when a 230 kilovolt transmission line near Ontario, Canada was tripped at 5.16 p.m. The result was in several other heavily lines would fail. New York City was completely dark by 5.27 p.m., just 11 minutes later. Altogether, 30 million people were affected by the blackout. Power would be gradually restored to the affected areas throughout the night, and by the morning, the light was back on everywhere. For the millions of people that faced this major blackout, I would venture to say that they woke up that morning just like any other morning. Turned on the lights, got the coffee going, and they went throughout their day in the hustle and bustle of work, school, and family, not thinking that anything bizarre or life-altering would happen. But in a matter of just 11 minutes, 30 million people had a new perspective on how valuable electricity is living in a modern world. You see, you don't know how good you got it until it's gone. Do you know what that feels like? To lose something you took for granted and eventually you realize how much it meant to you after it's gone? That close friend who moved away? That faithful preacher that was led by God to pastor elsewhere? A loyal and committed spouse or mom or dad? 
sadly passed away and is no longer around to talk to. A well-paying job that was suddenly terminated. You're not sure how you're going to pay the mortgage next month. Enjoying good health for most of your life. And then you're suddenly faced with a life-altering handicap, making you realize that you cannot live on your own anymore. You see, we can all drift into taking blessings like these for granted and even take people for granted that we dearly love. But when we feel their absence, whether by their distance from us or somehow they departed out of our regular routines of life or whether they left us through death, we suddenly realize how much they meant to us, how much we needed them more than we thought. Beloved, we often don't realize how needy you and I are until what we're leaning on for strength is taken from us. No longer there to give us joy. No longer there to give us peace. No longer there to make life feel safe, whole, and complete. You see, for Christians... We understand this reality on a whole different level. In comparison to those New Yorkers of the Northeast blackout of 1965, losing things like electricity is more like a tiny flashlight that belongs to a child in comparison to what life without God's intimate presence and power is for us. You see, from the time that the first man and woman was cast out of the Garden of Eden, in Genesis chapter 3, because of their sin, mankind was plunged into thick darkness. When sin entered the world through man's disobedience, then came the universal blackout of pain, separation, suffering, and spiritual darkness. Man went from walking with his God, who is light, 1 John 1, verse 5 says, to being hostile to God. Instead of walking with God, seeking God, enjoying God, man began to hide from God, not seeking God. In fact, creating an image of God in our minds we're comfortable with, but not the God that's revealed in Scripture. The Scriptures say that we are now born hostile towards God and dead in our trespasses and sins. You see, this, my friend, is the norm of the human experience from the Genesis 3 on. Whereas Adam and Eve were graciously born into a world where they initially swam in the ocean of God's goodness, where man could experience pleasure and peace with his God, we know that this isn't the norm we experience today. At least not to that extent. You see, we inherited the grave clothes. We inherited the anti-God clothing, taking on Adam's guilt and condemned sinful condition. And each one of us now have locked hands with the whole human race, with Adam as our guilty forefather in rebellion to God. 
You see, Adam and Eve were separated from their God, justly cast out of the Garden of Eden, no longer to experience joy in their work without pain and disappointment, no longer able to experience unhindered and uninterrupted fellowship with God, but rather to experience the deceitfulness of sin, the pain of an aging body, the pain of an unfulfilling world. Every sinner from Adam forward that would ever live again would not be exempt from encountering the groaning effects of our fallen nature in a fallen world. And beloved, because of sin, one day, everyone who has lived and is living and will ever live will meet our final spiritual enemy, death. So what is life like for us as sinners who are exiled in a sin-saturated world? What has been the human experience since the expulsion of man from the Garden of Eden? We read in Genesis 3, verses 17 to 19, And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. So, for those of us who actually believe what the Bible says about our fallen condition in this fallen world, we know that apart from God creating us and God upholding us by his word and God empowering us and God giving us new life by his spirit, we can do nothing. That is, we can do nothing to please God unless God takes the sovereign initiative to seek, to rescue, to open our eyes, to turn our hearts. No man, no woman, no boy, no girl, regardless of what nation you are from, will ever seek the God of the Bible. Ever. Friends, If we cannot produce within ourselves a life of faithfulness and obedience to God, we are but walking corpse before the eyes of God. Unless God comes down to us and causes us to be born again, our spiritual obituary all reads the same dead in our trespasses and sins, incapable of coming to God on our own. How desperate then are we for God to come to us and give us life? John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him and I will raise him up on the last day. 
John 6, 63 to 65. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. But what about for those of us who have been drawn, who have been brought to our Heavenly Father? What about for those of us who are disciples of Jesus today? Does that mean we are now less dependent on God than we were before we knew him? Jesus told his disciples in John 15, verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Again, how powerless are we? How desperate are we, even as disciples of Jesus sitting here this morning, to bear spiritual fruit that brings God glory? For apart from me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Peace, joy, kindness, faithfulness, love, gentleness, self-control. We can't bear any of it apart from abiding in Jesus. You see, between the expulsion of man from the Garden of Eden to the eternal rest that awaits us in the new heavens and the new earth, we are all now living in an exiled state, beloved. This ain't home. You might have been born and raised and planned to die in Fort Smith or Barling, but friends, if you're a Christian, you're an alien. You're a sojourner. We are pilgrims marching through deserts and wildernesses hooked up to the oxygen tank of God's daily mercies. Friends, if those things are true, what do you do when your joy in God feels absent? What do you do when your joy in the Lord feels more like the needle is pointing to E on the tank? What do you do when your joy in God feels like a leaking, cracked bucket, unable to hold water? What do you do when the future in your life seems bleak and you're beginning to lose hope? You might even find yourself crying, faint prayers. Will things ever change for the better? In my marriage? For my kids? In my friendships, in my career, in my health, in my local economy, in my country, in my local church, in my own sanctification, and fight against a besetting sin. Friends, when your soul feels like you are laying prostrate in the dust, what do you do? 
you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 85. Psalm 85, if you're using the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 283, Psalm 85. As you're turning there, let me give you a little context to where we're at in God's Word today. This morning's psalm is written by one of the sons of Korah. You can see that in the heading at the top of the psalm. To the choir master, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, This would have been one of the descendants of that grimly infamous man named Korah who's well known in the scriptures for his rebellion against God's anointed leaders, Moses and Aaron. Uh, Korah had left, led himself and hundreds of people in the wilderness days to revolt, and that as an act of God's judgment, the Lord opened up the earth and swallowed them down. I mean, friends, that, that's pretty scary. Read number 16 sometime. However, God was merciful to preserve the faith and future of Korah's descendants as they were used of God in worship, corporate worship, in the temple and in the tabernacle. In fact, if we read Numbers 26, verses 10 and 11, notice what we're told in the scriptures. And the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah. When that company died, when the fire devoured 250 men, and they became a warning. But the sons of Korah did not die. God, even in wrath, God still shows mercy. As we read throughout the remainder of the Old Testament, Korah's descendants are painted in a much brighter light than their forefather. As they served in the days of King David and King Solomon, Uh, They served as musicians and gatekeepers at their tabernacle and the temple. If you want to read more about the sons of Korah, you can read 1 Chronicles 6, 1 Chronicles 9, 1 Chronicles 26. In fact, we even read that the sons of Korah are still ministering, the descendants of Korah, that is, at the temple in the days of King Jehoshaphat, more than a century after David. You can read more about that in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. The exact time period of when this psalm is written And the specific context for why it was written is somewhat uncertain. Uh, But it's very likely, though, that it was written with the backdrop of the Babylonian exile and return in mind. As you'll see, the reference to land and restoration to a prosperous and fruitful state are mentioned multiple times. Uh, This psalm very well could then be read by other books of the Bible, uh, such as Ezra, and Nehemiah in the book of Haggai. Uh, As for the theme of this psalm, Psalm 85 is both a mixture, it's a combination of a psalm of lament and a plea or a prayer, a desperate prayer for God to bring revival amongst his people again. We'll see in this passage the remembrance of the worship leaders of good days gone by. And the tug of war, heart struggle of when God's people realize they need God's life-giving power once again. Please follow with me as I read. To the choir master, 
a psalm of the sons of Korah. Lord, you were favorable to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation. And put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again? That your people may rejoice in you. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak. For he will speak peace to his people, to his saints. But let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. Steadfast love and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Faithfulness springs up from the ground and righteousness looks down from the sky. Yes, the Lord will give what is good and our land will yield its increase. Righteousness will go before him and make his footsteps away. This is God's word. So what do you do when God's love feels distant and your joy in him is lacking? We remember, we turn, and we listen. We remember, We turn and we listen. If you're taking notes, I have three points for us today. Number one, remember God's acts of mercy in the past. It's verses one to three. Number two, turn to God in unceasing prayer. It's verses four to seven. And number three, listen to God's word and wait eagerly for him to act. It's verses eight to 13. Let's look at number one. Remember God's acts of mercy in the past. You'll notice here in the psalm that the psalmist begins by looking back at a wonderful memory in Israel's history. A memory that would have brought him and scores of other people in Israel a sense of deep and immense joy and peace. A rock-solid assurance that it was once very well with their land back home. It was once very well with God's people and the worship at the temple. It was once very well with his own soul. But this wonderful memory wasn't like wishful thinking or some type of childhood nostalgia that gave him kind of a giddy butterflies in his stomach. You know, if you ever went at those moments where you're trying to remember good memories around Christmas time as a kid, thinking of all the fun things you did with mom and dad, it just, 
You just wish you could kind of go back. Or maybe you're just making it sound more fun than it really was. Uh, Either way, the psalmist here is remembering something quite different than a childhood pastime. He's looking back at a profound and powerful act of God's mercy when the Lord had provided his covenant people a land of blessing in a land of abundance, the promised land, the land of Canaan. Uh, This land was an inheritance given to them by God himself, carved out with certain boundaries, certain lots given to different tribes of the people. And this inheritance was kept for his chosen people, the people that our sovereign God, the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, adopted as sons and daughters. A people who were once slaves to foreign nations and scattered abroad like sheep without a shepherd, who were then, by God's mercy, miraculously delivered out of slavery, brought back from their wandering, and then set apart for God's kingdom purposes. And they were, Exodus 19, verses 5 and 6 says, a treasured possession among all peoples, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. This is God's chosen people, his elect people, those who he set his love upon, not because they deserved his love, but because he loved them. He loved them because he chose to love them. And friends, in Psalm 85, we see different taglines, different descriptions of God's people mentioned in this psalm. You'll notice in verse 1, he mentions the fortunes of Jacob. Your translation might even say the captives of Jacob. Verses 2 and 6, he mentions your people, speaking of God possessing them. Verse 8, he says his people, and then he says his saints, his godly ones, those who he has set apart and cleaned up and is using for his purposes. These are all descriptions referring to the same people. These are his special people, those who he has set his love and fatherly care upon. But as good as the inheritance was, the ultimate significance of the promised land was not the type of dirt or soil that it had. It wasn't even the beauty or prosperity of the agriculture, of the abounding blessings that God had given. That wasn't the end-all, be-all. Cattle, plants, and food was not the climax for why they enjoyed the land. You see, the bounty and the blessing, the protection and the safety, the peace that they would enjoy would reveal. It would depict a much richer and more important blessing, a blessing that the surrounding nations of the world would be in awe of. The blessing of the land would reveal the relationship status that Israel belong to God. That was God's way of giving the DTR, defining the relationship. My people and my land because they belong to me. They're mine. The one true and living God of the whole universe. Listen to Leviticus 26 verses 3 to 12. 
The Lord says, if you walk in my statutes and observe my commandments and do them, then I will give you your rains in their season, and the land shall yield its increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. Your threshing shall last to the time of the great harvest, and the grape harvest shall last to the time for sowing. And you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in your land securely. I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid. And I will remove harmful beasts from the land, and the sword shall not go through your land. You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall chase ten thousand, and your enemies shall fall before you by the sword. I will turn to you and make you fruitful and multiply you and will confirm my covenant with you. You shall eat old store long kept, and you shall clear out the old to make way for the new. I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. You see, the possession of the land was wrapped up in a covenant relationship between God and his people. If they obeyed the Lord and stayed faithful to their end of the covenant, they fulfilled their marriage vows, per se. They would keep the land. But if they disobeyed the Lord and they became faithless to their end of the covenant, they would lose the land. Beloved, that means that the greatest curse of Israel is that if they lost the land, they would lose the presence of God. God is everywhere. He is omnipresent, but his Shekinah glory, the one thing that made the people of Israel distinct from the surrounding nations, would no longer be with them. Ezekiel 10 and Ezekiel 11 is one of the saddest chapters in that prophecy where Ezekiel gets a vision as he is sent off to Babylon and sees the glory of God being removed from the temple. And there's weeping and there's sorrow. You know why? Because if you lost the presence of God, well, you lost everything. But friends, the greatest blessing that came from possessing the land was that God would be with his people. Did you catch that last statement that Brother Allen read from 2 Corinthians 6 that the Apostle Paul wrote, who quotes Leviticus 26 that I just read? Did you hear those last verses? Did you hear those last promises? I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you, and I will be your God, and you shall be my people. If God is holy, friends, put on those logical thinking hats now, okay? If God is holy, and he cannot take pleasure in sin, he cannot dwell in the presence of sin, what did that mean for Israel when they possessed the land and God stayed with them? Did Israel become sinless all of a sudden? Did they become just like God all of a sudden? 
God dwelling amidst a sinful people? It means that God had mercy on their sin. He provided a way for them to have their sins covered. The guilt removed from his sight. That's why you'll notice in Psalm 85, verses 2 and 3, it was forgiveness of sins and mercy. The mercy of God that was associated with possessing the land. He says there, starting in verse 1, Lord, you were favorable. You took delight in your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. Now look at the logic. Verse 2, you forgave the iniquity of your people. You covered all their sin. You withdrew all your wrath. You turned from your hot anger. As some of you might be already aware, the Summer Olympics are upon us. Shark Week is over, by the way. It's been about a week or so. The Olympics are here. Over the next two or three weeks, I will watch these events from time to time. And one thing that I'll probably start thinking to myself, as I did yesterday, man, I'm out of shape. Truth be told, here's that real talk coming from you. Yesterday, I went to the Spartan Adventure Park. My back is sore. My arm is sore from jumping on a trampoline. Playing dodgeball with kids a third of my age. Man, I'm out of shape. And as I'm looking at the Olympics, I'm looking, how is that girl swimming that fast? How is that man lifting all that weight? I mean, maybe you're like me. You look in the mirror and your joints start screaming at you. You might even attempt to do one of these exercises. Try to get it on YouTube later. But if you try, it's probably going to hit you like a ton of bricks. I will never be able to accomplish what those Olympic athletes are accomplishing. For me, the Olympics are a spoonful of humility for my pride. And friends, the greatest blessing that God could give ever any of us is the one thing we cannot possess and we cannot achieve on our own, the forgiveness of sins. In far greater an eternally more significant way than being compared to an Olympic athlete, when you and I look into the mirror of God's word and we begin to see how holy and pure and perfect God is and how far we fall short of his standard, we will feel a weight and a burden that is unbearable. We will feel a weight and a burden that is incurable apart from God showing mercy to us. You see, God is so pure and our sins are so many, grotesquely impure in His sight, that we don't even have the ability to stand at the starting blocks of God's righteous standard. Listen, if you're here this morning and you're carrying a heavy burden in your life and you're wondering, I don't know if the Lord even loves me. Uh, Listen, this room is filled with people with burdens and, and I show sympathy towards that. I'm sure this room, if we all knew everything that you're holding up in your life and carrying in your heart, we would all feel sad and show sympathy for you. But if you're here this morning and you don't know of the blessing 
that first comes by being forgiven by God of your sins, you need to realize that you have a greater burden to deal with. A burden far greater than any trial you'll ever face in this life. You need to understand that the greatest burden you and I will ever carry is our sins committed against God. Sin is always a big deal because we serve a big and holy God. Sin is always a big deal because we serve a big and holy God. That's why our sin rightly warrants the holy and just wrath of Almighty God. You see, when you're evangelizing, like I attempted to do with the man catching raccoons out of my in-law's house, it went south real quick. But I didn't even get to God's wrath. I just asked the question, do you attend church anywhere? Why are you judging me? I I wasn't judging you, sir. I was asking if you went to a church anywhere. And it just kind of stopped. I said, well, have you ever read the Bible? Why, you think I'm a worse sinner than you? I'm like, okay, evangelism, gone wrong. Okay, we're just not making traction here. But I would guess that the sheer thought of a holy God knowing what kind of life, whatever this man's living, his conscience was bothering him. I didn't have to say anything about sin. I didn't have to compare my life to his. Just the mentioning of God awakened his guilty conscience. And friends, you might be tempted here today to push off a guilty conscience, to suppress the truth about your wickedness before the God who made you. You might even evangelize this week and people scoff at you. They scoff at the idea of God's wrath. They mock you that you believe in an eternal, tormenting place called hell. But friends, the Bible repeatedly warns us that God's wrath is nothing to joke about. It's nothing to make light of in conversation. I think we all need to be reminded of what the writer of Hebrews says about the wrath of God. Hebrews 10.31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Our corruption, our hypocrisy, our hatred, our selfishness, our worldliness, our idolatry, our sensuality, our gossiping, Our bitterness, our envying, our lying, our idle and foolish words, our disobedience to our parents, our preoccupation with self-glory, all of it, beloved, is sin. It's not a mistake. It's sin. Call it what God calls it because it warrants the wrath of God on our life. You see, the greatest burden that you and I could carry would be the guilt that you will carry before a holy God who will judge you one day. But the greatest blessing you could ever experience is having that burden rolled away. King David once felt the weight of unconfessed sin in his life when he thought he could hide. But when he was reminded that God was also merciful towards those who humble themselves and cling to God's mercy, that's where David found lasting relief. Psalm 32, 
verses 1 to 5, blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Friends, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ alone today for the forgiveness of your sins, you're blessed. You're not cursed. That burden that's heavier than any trial you will ever carry in this life has been rolled away. Oh, take heart, dear Christian. You are more blessed than your sins deserve. God has been good to you and I because he has treated us better than our sins deserve. And friends, you are more loved in Christ than you will ever be by any human being this world will ever introduce you to. And if you're not a Christian here today, if you feel the weight of your sin, look at David as an example. Why hide your sin any longer? Why try to fake it to make it? Confess it to him. He already knows it. God's mercy in Jesus is greater than the guilt you're carrying for your sin. Well, back to Psalm 85. The psalmist here was recounting God's profound and powerful act of mercy in Israel's past. It was a truth that he held so dear to his heart, which is exactly why he was so perplexed at his present circumstances. Circumstances that seemed to say that God was turning his back on them. That God was actually against them. Friends, if God was so good and merciful in the past to his people, why did God's love seem so distant in the present towards them now? If that's where you're at this morning, let's follow the psalmist example. What did he do? Well, that leads to point number two. Turn to God in unceasing prayer. Turn to God in unceasing prayer. He begins his lament and plea in verse 4. Restore us again, O God, of our salvation, and put away your indignation toward us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger to all generations? Will you not revive us again, that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Now, because God's indignation and anger is mentioned in this section, it's implied, because of what we just covered, that apparently God's people had drifted in their devotion to him. Somewhere along the way, pagan nations began to influence God's people rather than God's people influencing pagan nations. Somewhere along the way, idolatry, sexual immorality, injustice, Maybe priests and prophets were not preaching the truth to God's people. They had, in one way or another, broken their end of the covenant. And they were experiencing God's just and measured discipline. His holy displeasure. 
They were feeling the effects of their sin. And they were experiencing in a real and painful way what life is like when God's intimate presence is no longer there. What life is like when the electricity is pulled and God's power is missing. Friends, when is the most helpless you've ever felt in your life? When have you become so desperate that God was all you had? Moms and dads of young children can feel overwhelmed with the demands of keeping the house clean. Amen? Okay, maybe y'all are keeping it clean. Keeping the kids fed and bathed, not to mention staying up at night to tend to their crying and fear, or simply to break up a fight, or to feed them to keep them alive. It's not much different for parents loving grown children as well. Though they may not need your help as much as they used to, the deep concerns for your children nonetheless remain the same. Will they marry the right person? Will they honor the Lord with their life? Will they ever turn to the Lord for the forgiveness of their sins? You see, being a mom or a dad can bring a grown adult to their knees really quick, regardless of what age they are. Well, work can do this as well. Take a new role in your job that you were first excited about, but now you feel over your head. The demands are pressing in around you like sharks around a whale carcass. And the nights are filled with thoughts of all the tasks you've left unfinished. Just one month into the job, you feel super unqualified and wonder if I can even keep this up. Or maybe you've been trying to work through a sharp disagreement you've had with someone. The very thought of this person's face The sound of their voice makes you nervous. You know you're going to need God's strength and God's courage to speak the truth and love to them, but it's making you a little nauseous inside, even afraid of confronting them. You know, churches can go through times where they feel desperate too, can't they? Churches can go through seasons where it feels dead. The doors are open, but the overall temperature of the people's love feels cold. The ministry events are still on the church calendar, but everything just seems fruitless. Going through the motions, discouraging. The numbers are declining. The budget is getting thinner. The excitement was there when you first joined the church many years ago. has sadly faded off into a distant memory. The sermons seem flat, the prayers seem superficial, and membership, well, it's practically meaningless. As a pastor, I regularly gather with pastors almost every week of my life, whether in small groups or larger ones or one-to-one. And we talk about how we're doing, how our churches are doing, and maybe how other churches are doing beyond our own immediate influence. Let me let you in on a little secret from your pastor in case you didn't know this. When pastors are feeling discouraged in their ministries, when churches are feeling dry and dull, or perhaps the church is quite literally dying right in front of you, pastors and members of those churches 
can start feeling desperate to do whatever they can to keep people around, even if that means compromising on biblical convictions. Friends, one of the greatest hindrances of the advancement to the gospel and the building up of healthy churches around the world, including places like Fort Smith and in the state of Arkansas, is the allure of pragmatism. Pragmatism. Pragmatism is the notion that meaning or worth is determined by practical consequences. If a technique or course of action has the desired effect, well, it's good. If it doesn't seem to work, it must be wrong. In other words, the end justifies the means. John MacArthur, who's been a pastor for over 50 years at the same church, has a few opinions about pragmatism. He says this, Pragmatism is quickly replacing supernaturalism in many churches. It is an attempt to achieve spiritual objectives by human methodology rather than supernatural power. Its primary criterion is external success. It will employ whatever method draws a crowd and stimulates the desired response. Its underlying presuppositions are that the church can accomplish spiritual goals by fleshly means and that the power of God's word alone is not sufficient to break through a sinner's blindness and hardness of heart. If you and I, friends, we got to look in the mirror first, or any Christian for that matter, are being tempted to think that preaching, praying, singing, and serving is not enough for Christ to build his church, we could unknowingly be sliding down a slippery slope towards pragmatism. Brothers and sisters, God cares about his church. His church are the people for whom Christ's blood was shed. You don't play with his church. You don't play with his sheep. You don't try to reinvent the wheel. I should never try to reinvent the wheel. Christ knows what is best for his sheep. And shepherds who care for the sheep should tremble because Hebrews says they're going to give an account for how they have been leading Christ's sheep. Friends, what we win people with is what we will win people to. What we win people with is what we win people to. The question is this, beloved, is what we win people with, what God says will keep them focused on him. Is what we're drawing the crowds with going to keep them in love with him? Is what we're drawing them with the preaching of the gospel, intercessory prayer, sacrificial love through service, singing God's praises every Lord's day. Friends, these are the means, the simple, ordinary means of grace that God will supernaturally use to build his church. You see, it looks silly to the world, and it looks foolish to churches who are selling out. And it looks ridiculous to preachers who probably need to go get a new job, who have forgotten that God will save 
God will convert, God will transform, and God will build his church through the means he's ordained in his word. You see, friends, we need God's power more than we realize. We need God's spirit to work more than we realize. Friends, if God's spirit was commanded by the Father and the Son to leave Chaffee Crossing Baptist Church. There would be no life here. God would no longer dwell amongst these people. Oh, friends, read the book of Revelation, chapters 2 and 3. Jesus loves his church, but he also warns it. We should always examine our hearts, Examine if we've ever forsaken the love we had at first because if we don't repent and return, he might remove that candlestick and Christ's presence will be no longer there. A prayerless church is the recipe for a dying church. A pragmatic church will lay the foundation for a superficial church. But a church by God's grace full of members remaining steadfast and unceasing in prayer to God, will put themselves in the safest place to be revived by God. You see, the depth of our humility is measured by our depth of desperation for God to restore what we, were, we broke, what we messed up. The depth of our godliness is measured by our depth of desperation for God to revive us in all the ways we are spiritually fat, out of shape, and grieving the spirit of the living God. We need God. We need God to restore us. We need God to revive us. Friends, we need the spirit of the living God, the fire of God from heaven to come down and to ignite a fire in our hearts that we cannot ignite ourselves. Friends, we are desperate every day of our life. Friends, we don't need specially occasioned revival tent meetings. We need revival every day when we wake up. There is never a day we don't need God to revive us. Because if God's not reviving us, we're drifting. If God doesn't wake us up, we're falling asleep. Oh, may we pray that God would bring revival. But pray that God would bring revival not just to our church. Pray for God to bring revival to other churches as well. That's why every Lord's Day in our pastoral prayer, I try to lead us in praying for other gospel-preaching churches. Other churches where the gospel is proclaimed. Because we're not the only restaurant in town, people. I want King Jesus to be worshipped at every gospel-preaching church. And so should you. Oh, friends, may God bring revival. May God fill empty seats and empty pews in dying churches, even if he doesn't bring revival here, but he brings it somewhere else. Friends, that's a test if our hearts are right. Lord, bring revival, even if that means the other church across town being built up and we remain content where we're at. So what are some of the fruits We'll see if God does bring revival and new life into a church. Well, there'll be an increase in joy in God himself. Did you notice verse 6? Will you not revive us again? Why? That your people may rejoice in you. Not rejoice in a preacher. 
Not rejoice in church traditions. Not rejoice in a denomination. But to rejoice in God. There will be an increase in concern for the salvation of sinners. Look at verse 7. Show us your steadfast love, O Lord, and grant us your salvation. Oh, friends, you want to know if God is igniting a revival in your heart? Well, you'll find that you'll be praying for lost sinners more frequently. It will break your hearts when they reject the gospel. And friends, a church who experiences revival will hunger to hear the word of God and show a holy reverence for it. Which leads to point number three. Listen to God's word and wait eagerly for him to act. After pleading for God to restore and revive the people of Israel, there is an interruption in his prayer. You ever been interrupted before? You're kind of on the phone and like all of a sudden someone starts speaking over you and it's kind of like the old school walkie-talkie. You're like, whoa, whoa, who are you? Well, that's kind of what verse 8 does. It's kind of strange. He's praying, he's praying, then all of a sudden this interjection, this abrupt change in the scene. Now, whether it's a prophet or a priest speaking on behalf of God to the people, we're not exactly sure. But in verse 8, we see what is needed if God's people want to experience a God-ignited revival in their midst. Let me hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace to his people, to his saints, but let them not turn back to folly. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him, that glory may dwell in our land. When God speaks, we must listen. When God speaks, we must listen. Because when God speaks, he creates life. When God speaks, he brings into existence something that wasn't there before. Do you remember that scene in Ezekiel 37 where God described his exiled people as a valley of dry bones? And what does he tell Ezekiel to do? The humanly impossible task. Prophesy or preach What I tell you to preach, and I will cause this valley of dry bones to live. Ezekiel 37, starting in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh, Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live. 
and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound. And behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin had covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God. Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost. We are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will open your graves and raise you from the graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. Oh, friends, God delights in bringing revival to people who feel their desperation for him. God delights answering the prayers of the song we sang earlier, Speak, O Lord. God delights using fallible instruments like a preacher like me to speak his words and people live. God delights using you to speak what you know about God. And God, by his spirit, causes things that were dead to come to life. Friends, We need revival, but revival is costly. Revival never comes without repentance. Revival never comes without humility. How will you know if a church experiences revival? Sean Lucas writes, a church filled with men and women who are delighting in God and his holiness, who are humble before God and others, and who are living out that holy delight in obedience to God's word, that is a church that is experiencing genuine revival. Oh, may God have mercy upon us. Jeff, may God have mercy upon every gospel-preaching church throughout the River Valley. But how can God be just on the one hand, and should enact his wrath upon us, and yet be merciful and patient with us on the other? How can God justify the ungodly and not be unjust himself? Friends, this is the riddle of the Old and New Testament. You see, because of our sin, we are separated from God. The only thing we deserve is the wrath of God. 
We live as an exile in a sin-saturated world. And the only thing that an exile people like us deserve is to be swallowed up in the earth like Korah and his rebellious crowd. But we need to be rescued, don't we? We need to be brought out of exile to a safe place in a safe land where God is there. We need God to come down to us. We need God to come and save us. We need God to restore and revive what is dead. Friends, sinners like you and I need God to dwell among us. Jesus Christ, the Word who became flesh, dwelt among us. Truly God, yet truly man. He left his glory in heaven to dwell among sinful men. And through his own obedience to God, he was still rejected by his own people. And yet Jesus preached good news of great joy. The Prince of Peace preached peace to the nations. God's Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, would preach a message of peace to those who were near, to the Jewish people, and to those who were far off like us, the Gentiles, who were strangers to the covenants of promise. Jesus would reveal himself. Do you remember? I am the way, the truth, and the what? Say it a little louder. I am the way, the truth, and the... Friends, you want to see revival, give them Jesus. You want to see your marriage resurrected, it starts with your heart in Jesus. You want to fight that besetting sin? You don't need behavior modification. You need a fresh vision of the cross. When Christ laid down his life, bearing the wrath of God for the sins of everyone who would turn from their sins and trust in him, then God raised him from the dead, giving us access to God, opening the door to that sweet, protective care of a loving Shepherd, oh my friends, there is coming a day where Jesus will judge the world in righteousness. And the Bible is clear, as Jeff read earlier, he's commanded, not suggested, commanded that all people everywhere repent and find refuge and restoration and revival in Jesus. Jesus and Jesus alone can cover your sin. Jesus and Jesus alone can remove the guilt. And God promises in the new covenant, he will remember your sins no more. Christ bore it and he bore it all. You see, in Christ, we see steadfast love and faithfulness meet. We see righteousness and peace kiss each other. Christ reconciles us to God, the sinful and the guilty, and gives us his righteousness. If you're feeling the weight of your sin today, turn to God. He's already turned to you in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Believe upon him, trust him, and he will bring you safely home. You see, in Psalm 85, verses 10 to 13, we see the hope 
that Israel was praying for. The sons of Korah were wanting to see revival and restoration once again. They wanted to see a restoration of God's people with God in a safe place. And the psalm ends with a promise of hope. A clear way was made for them by God. A clear way for sinners like you and me to seek our God and dwell with him forever. That's what verse 12 is hinting at. But you see, the promised land of the Old Testament was just a preview. It was a foretaste. It was the appetizer of the eternal heavenly city, the new Jerusalem that awaits all of us who have been made new creatures by the spirit of the living God. In the life to come for God's saints, where perfect righteousness and peace abide forever, we're told our future and final destination is to be with our God forever. Revelation 21, verses 3 to 4, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Do you want to know how sweet and peaceful and joyful that place is? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Beloved, in this life, we are one with God by his spirit. In this life, The church is the temple of the living God where God Almighty dwells amongst his people. And friends, one day, we will no longer see through a dim mirror, but we will behold our Lord face to face as he is. There will be no more threats of exile. There will be no more possibilities of separation and frustration with his people. Again, Jesus Christ the righteous one, has come and made a way for us to be with God. Remember God's acts of mercy in the past. Turn to God in unceasing prayer. Listen to God's word and wait eagerly for him to act. When your soul feels like you're laying prostrate in the dust. What do you do? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who can restore what is broken about us. You are a God who can revive and give life to what is dead, to what is spiritually fat and out of shape. Lord, we praise you for the gospel. We praise you for Jesus who has come to us, who has dwelt among us. And now by your spirit, we as your church, the temple of the living God, are tasting a foretaste of what we will have forever in heaven. Lord, I do pray you would revive our hearts individually, revive our hearts collectively as a church, And Lord, again, we do pray for genuine revival 
to sweep across Fort Smith, to sweep across Arkansas, to sweep across our country, and to sweep across the globe. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.